This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. John Piero Petrieri is an associate professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD and an expert on leadership and learning in the workplace. We did a fascinating Q&A with John Piero earlier this year on Zoom fatigue, and we were eager to chat with him again. Today, we talk about the growing tendency to deeply intertwine our sense of self-worth with our performance at work, why prizing efficiency and alignment at an organization is often at odds with fostering innovation and inclusion. And he also explains the importance of putting care at the center of leadership rather than productivity. I loved our chat, and I'm dying for John Piero to write a leadership book. After you listen, I think you'll see why. Most of us are so used to managers that just help us get a little bit better than when we meet that one manager that actually ask us more fundamental questions. We remember them all our lives. We call them mentor. And, and usually what did these people do? They imagined us in a way we couldn't imagine ourselves. They actually helped us not improve at, at being the person we already were. They helped us question, who do we want to become? Okay, let's get to my conversation with John Piero Petrieri. So we thank you for the story that you did with us on Goop about Zoom fatigue and mm -hmm. the, the acclimatization of this new way of working, which I think we all obviously thought was maybe going to be temporary in March. And now it feels like maybe this is going to be the standard bearer going forth. What do you anticipate will happen as we try and eventually with hopefully a vaccine, like move back into the way that we used to do business. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or what would you want us to bring forward? I talk to a lot of people about this, right? You know, what, what's going to happen? And, and, and the office is very polarizing. I mean, I find it fascinating because you know, every time you think of the workplace, I find fascinating that even people that have never worked in a workplace, I've, you know, hang out and I've researched lots of artists, for example, they've never worked in a corporate office. And yet they often talk to you about the office. Like the office is this place where they could never really have a good existence. And then you talk to other people and say, oh my God, I miss my office. You know, it's either this sanctuary for work that, you know, makes you feel good and you meet interesting people or this sort of prison where the soul is constrained and there's boredom and abuse and all that. And I realized that when people try to make predictions, which I really, I have no clue what's going to happen, honestly. <laughs> but what I'm interested in why do people feel so mixed? Why are there people that are saying, oh my God, I can't wait to get back to the office. And people say, oh, yay. 
And finally, you know, I can make my own schedule and all of that. And what I come up with is this. I think when people miss the office, what they really miss is not the office. When they say, oh, the office is dead. You know, the office was never alive in the first place, was it? I mean, it was just a bunch of bricks and, and glasses and screens and, and bad food at the canteen or maybe good food at the canteen if you were really, really super lucky. But what was alive was you. So when people miss the office, what they miss is who they were in that office. So if you had a workplace where you felt somewhat comfortable, safe, engaged, free, then you're going to miss the office. But if the office for you was a place of boredom and kind of you know, low-level aggression or even outright prejudice, and you know, then you're not going to miss it very much. Then you're not going to miss it very much. So I think it really depends you know, on what your relationship to the office was. I mean, in many ways, like every relationship is, you know, it's part reality and part fantasy. And we are used to understanding that about our family relationships, our friends, our romantic partners, of course. But the same is true for work. The same is true for colleagues. The same is true for the office. And the office is a big part, you know, of the narrative of work in the last century. So I think what we are dealing with is if the office isn't there, what is the place where we can be ourselves at work? And remember, for some people, they will have a place at home which really has all the benefits of the office and none of the hassles because it's uh, confined, it's conducive, it's uh, easy to concentrate and all of that. And some people don't. And this yeah. rhetoric that you always find, oh, that home is a safe place. Well, not for everyone, really. No, certainly not. And it's also, it can be quite chaotic and you have to have the space to have a place to even work. You know, I certainly know a lot of people who are working off their laps on couches or on beds, which is mm-hmm. not so fun after, and you can't, you know, clearly we can't go to shared workspaces. You can't really go to coffee shops. And it's also quite intense. Yeah. It's also quite intense because you are on your own with your work, trying to do your best, trying to make sure people still notice you exist, that you are, you know, that you're doing something useful. You don't want to let your colleagues down. You don't want to let your organization down. It And suddenly you are forced in a state of eye alert. I mean, let, let's be honest. Most days at the office weren't really so engaging and so exciting. They were like somewhat productive and not too bothered. I mean, to your, right. to your cardiocirculatory system, that's bliss. Yeah. That's bliss. You know, these situations of eye arousal that we sometimes talk about, oh, the office and this, you know, work as a place of passion or work as a place of suffering. Yes, in the kind of peak moments. But for most of the time, work is like, okay, just another day of kind of moving things along. And, you know, that's really not that bad. If we had eye arousal all the time, we'd burn out pretty quickly. And that's exactly what you see happening right now. Right. You see right. a lot of mental health issues. You see people, you see, you see the two extremes. You see peaks of productivity on the one hand and a lot of mental suffering on the other hand. Well, that's what happens when your relationship to work is very intense and unmediated. You know, we've been wanting passion in the workplace for the last two decades. Well, there you go. This is what happens. Right. And then you talk a bit about sort of in the story that you did with us about face work, which is this idea that particularly now where there's so much economic uncertainty, many people have lost their jobs, although primarily Mm. sort of in the care industries. And it's obviously primarily affecting people who really, really can't afford to lose their jobs, but that there's a tremendous amount of anxiety and that's what's driving the need to create meetings, Zoom calls, et cetera, not necessarily because they need to convene everyone around a concept or idea, but that we all feel this drive to appear productive and important. And like our time, particularly when it's not bound by, oh, well, I was at the office from nine to six, when it's more nebulous and we we live in this economy that's where we were paid by the hour, right? Or yeah. I mean, we're salaried, but this idea, or many of us, but that your time is what's valuable and then when our time becomes unboundaried and unconfined by the office, it starts to feel very difficult to determine what's enough and when am I done? Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about that is in many ways, we are all 
in the gig economy, whether yeah. we know it or not. So I did a study of a couple of years, got published a couple of years back with two colleagues, Sue Ashford and Amy Versineski, the University of Michigan and Yale, respectively. And we were studying successful people who worked completely independently, some on the artistic end, like, you know, writers, producers, filmmakers, and some on the kind of more business end, consultants, software engineer, designers, and all that. And one of the things that we were fascinated by was this sense that there is no such thing as a personal life and a professional life. What you do is who you are. And what that does is it's extremely liberating because you can really express yourself, you can discover yourself, you can develop yourself through your work. But it's also extremely anxiety-provoking. And one of the things that I think it's interesting is the nature of the anxiety that very, that very close relationship with work generates. It's not just the usual performance anxiety, right? When you go to the office, a lot of the anxiety you feel is performance anxiety. You know, will people listen to me? Will I be able to finish this project? Will people see that I add value? Will I get the promotion and whatnot? But on occasion, only on occasion, the anxiety becomes existential. Now, in psychology, we make a distinction between performance anxiety, which is, can I do something? Can I crack this? And existential anxiety, which is more like about, will I survive? Do I exist? Does this have any meaning? And in traditional career research and work context, 90% of your anxiety is performance anxiety. Can I do it? And every now and then you worry like, oh my God, will I make it here? And what will happen to me if this doesn't work out? Or, you know, the, what's the point of this? Now, once you start working in this way, where work becomes very personal, everything is existential. Everything you do is an expression of yourself. If you succeed, you are a success. And I remember this person telling me, you know, when you work in this way, when there's no longer a boundary, and the office was the ultimate boundary between the personal and the professional self. When that boundary disappear, you don't have failures. You become a failure. And the other thing that happens is productivity. I've, I've really seen it. And, and I remember seeing it in independent workers and now I'm experiencing it myself. I'm seeing it with everyone. Productivity becomes an obsession. So in order not to think about all the worries, like, will I make a living? Will I make enough money? Will I still, you know, remain connected to my network? Will I be able to do something that is of value and that is meaningful? In order not to, you know, live in a state of worry, what you do is, okay, let me be productive. Productivity becomes, you know, almost your escape from this um, melting pot of worries and dreads and all of that. And the moment you stop producing, you almost feel like you stop existing. You know, you're not turning in another piece the moment no one sees it. So I think there's two things that are happening in this digital world. In fact, now I've come to think when people talk about hybrid, the real hybridization is not between physical work and digital work. The real hybridization is between the personal and the professional. Yeah. That line is disappearing. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. The busyness that I think afflicts so much of us, afflicts so many of our lives is its own version of sort of workaholism. It's that numbing. And it does point to that existential dread and those feelings, those underlying feelings of sort of, am I safe? Am I secure? And can I hustle? Can I do more? So that I can be knowing that we haven't solved the underlying issue. And so 
along those lines, like I know you talk about sort of the rise of nomadic professionals and the idea that we think of ourselves not as cogs, but as artists and that we prize. Yeah. And, and I wonder too, when we think about COVID, which in some ways, you know, there's sort of that old adage, like you go on, on vacation and then people come back and they're like, I quit my job. Like they've, they've managed to get enough space and distance to reevaluate mm-hmm. who they are in the context of their of how they spend their time. So do you think we're going to see sort of this a huge shift in the workplace as people, once the economy stabilizes someday, that they're sort of reapprising their roles and whether they're being well, appropriately mentored? That's a really great question. And, um, okay, I'm going to do the academic thing, okay? I'm going to say it depends, but then not completely. (laughs) I'm going to say it depends on what. So, you know, as you said earlier, for a lot of us, you know, that this is a very stressful time, you know, and under high conditions of stress, it's very, very hard to have this sort of vacation experience you describe, which is the moment in which you relax, you take a step back and you evaluate the big pictures. And I think what's happening right now is a lot more, less like a vacation and more like a midlife crisis, Mm -hmm. which is is a really stressful moment that pushes you to face the way you're living your life. And what we know from midlife crisis, except it's not an individual midlife crisis, now it's a collective one. I actually think it's a, a midlife crisis of working lives in general. Many of us are thinking, is this really it? Is this, can I do this? How long can I keep this going? What's going to happen? And in a midlife crisis, two things happen. Some people become extremely defensive and really regress and really try to kind of make it go away. And they almost double down and burn themselves out, you know, trying to pretend, you know, everything will come back to normal. And other people have that reaction you're talking about, which is really kind of step back and say, what I was doing was really, you know, there's a much better way of doing this. You know, I could have a much more spacious, much more personal, much more, you know, humane way of working. And I think this is kind of the the risk and the promise of this moment. I really see it. I really see we're having a reckoning with, you know, what leadership means, what managing means, what work means. And I think we risk sort of regressing on it just means you have to produce to stay alive. Or it might mean, okay, no, maybe we can do this in a more human way. Now, what does it, what makes the difference? And what I found, you know, when I was doing that study of independent workers, paradoxically, what makes the difference is the connections you have. If you have the resources that hold you in these moments of crisis, then I think you really can come out the other side uh, much wiser, much more human, you know, really a more spacious version of yourself. And if you find yourself isolated and worrying, then no. The most sensible thing is to become defensive. And frankly, I wouldn't blame people for doing that. It's the, it's the only, you know, your defensiveness is the only thing that stands between you and a complete breakdown. Right. And I think so. The question is, those of us who have the resources, yeah, we might have that vacation experience where, you know, we come out with a much clearer vision for ourselves and our work. But those of us who don't, instead will suffer will suffer yeah you know some people say well you know sometimes great art comes from trauma but you have to remember there's a lot more trauma in the world than there is art the reason why trauma becomes art is because the artist has a cocoon that allows them to transform the suffering into art now i've been really interested in what is that cocoon made of when i say you have to have the resources what do i mean four kind of connections One is a connection to people that support you in that moment of distress and questioning. Another one is a connection to a place. Do you have a place to work? Big difference between people who even at home have a place where they can work and people who feel they have no bounded place. Third, do you have a practice? Do you know what you know, you do well and what, how you do it and how you get to yourself through a day. And four is, do you have a sense of purpose? Now, if you think of the office, in many ways, with all you could criticize it, it kind of bundled these four things. It allowed you to kind of get some people around you that some of whom at least would be supportive. You had a certain place where you could be yourself at work. There were practices and routines. And then on a, on a good day, there was a sense of like we're doing something of use. 
It wasn't perfect, but at least you got the package. Now, the people who say, oh, now that I don't have the office, I can actually personalize these connections. Yes, they will become the real artist and they will be what, you know, the nomadic professionals who really feel like mobility gives me a lot of freedom. And the people who don't have the ability to really build those connections, then they will not feel nomadic and free as much as displaced and lost. Yeah. But as um, leaders or people who sort of have the ability to shape office culture pre-COVID and in your work, you sort of maintain, and this makes tons of sense to me, I've always felt like a job is salary, certainly, and other benefits. It's the value of the brand in terms of its how it adds or defines your career and makes you sort of compelling for your next opportunity down the road. Mm -hmm. And then third, it's what you learn, which to me always felt like the most valuable part of any job. And the moment when you stop learning is really the moment that you're done and you're not engaged and it's probably time to go. But we, most organizations or many organizations are perhaps all really focus in terms of of employee engagement on sort of practical technical skills or defining what we want people to learn. And so you sort of argue that that's absolutely the case wrong. Yeah. Can you take us through that? It's not wrong. I mean, it's just, the you know, it's not wrong. It's just the way it is in many ways, you know, and I, I work with a lot of organizations, right? And all organizations these days say learning is very important to us. We need more learning and uh, whatnot and you have to ask yourself is why do they make such a fuss about it and why does it seem why is it so desirable and why does it seem so hard and the reason is because organizations aren't really designed for learning Mm -hmm. you know that the way the very word organization as we have understood it the meaning we have given it in the in our imagination in our practice has actually nothing to do with learning. It has to do with performance. Over the last century, if you wish, organizations have been designed to maximize efficiency and alignment. This is in business, especially. These two words are, are, are almost a religion. If you say, oh, you know, maybe we need not to be too efficient. Maybe we need not to be too aligned. Oh my God, what are you saying? It's a heresy. But in reality, if you design a system for efficiency and alignment, then people will learn something. Yeah, of course they will learn, but they will learn how to be a bit more efficient and and conform a little bit more every day. And then guess what you lose? And then you say, oh, we have an issue with innovation. Oh, we have an issue with inclusion. No, you don't have an issue with innovation and inclusion. You have an issue with being so good at being efficient and aligned that the side effect is, of course, you don't have a lot of innovation, you don't have a lot of inclusion because efficiency and alignment are about all sticking together, trying to get everyone on the same page and doing things always a little bit incrementally, a little bit better. And I think that kind of learning is really, organizations are full of it. We don't need to tell everyone, you know, everyone is always motivated to increase their skills a little bit better, do things a bit faster with a little more, more finesse, more elegance, more productivity and all of that. And that's, you know, kind of incremental learning. When people say they want learning, I think what they mean is they want a different kind of learning because learning is not this monolith. Learning is not just one thing. Learning is also about thinking about something different or, you know, questioning about how can I, you know, how can I do something that I didn't used to do? How can I prepare myself for the future? Is there a space where I can maybe let go of some of the things that I do well, but I don't want to do anymore. That's kind of learning is transformational. And, you know, I often use an example from my private life. Like I grew up very overweight and it was really kind of, I struggled with it and I wanted to improve and I was embarrassed by it. School was difficult. And, you know, over time I learned and uh, I lost weight, I became fitter, I, I became an athlete and all of that. But that remained part of my early experience. Now, what has my learning had to be? There's a part of learning which is have some discipline, pay attention to how you eat, exercise regularly, sleep, and all of that. That's the incremental learning, like learning the skills to have a healthy lifestyle. But then there's another kind of learning that I've had to do. When I show up in a room, not carry that sense, oh, I might be embarrassed, oh, I might not be enough, or what if someone makes fun of me, which stayed with me long, long, long after 
I, you know, wasn't visibly that sort of overweight kid that people made fun of. And that's like, okay, I have to let go of an image of myself in order to tell myself I'm okay, I'm enough. Mm. That's very different than learning to, you know, go running three times a week. And I think in any, any career, in any work, in any life, you need both kinds of learning. If you think in the workplace, of course, you need the skills and the tools. I'm not in any way diminishing the importance of the incremental learning. Of course, you need the skills and tools in order to do things a bit better today, hopefully, than you did them yesterday. But you also need the space to think about who am I and what matters. And maybe what matters tomorrow is not going to be what matters today. Very different way of learning. For the first one, what you need is really deliberate practice consistency. But for the second one, what you need is inconsistency. You need imagination. You need, you know, that transformation learning is always inconvenient. And one of the things I find in organizations is, yes, we want, we want disruption, but please don't distract us. That's impossible. Yeah. That's impossible. You cannot have the cake of transformation and, and then eat it too. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. The problem too with sort of the our our focus on the practical technical skills and this sort of let's optimize 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 is optimize. that it jumps us into this grind of this hamster wheel of never being done never having done enough things can be better and then as you say like when things are disrupted and suddenly that task that you toiled to to perfect becomes automated then sort of the value of the value creation of learning how to do it well disappears, right? And the reality is I think we're all we all want to be creative problem solvers. We all want to flex our brains. We all want to think through issues and find ways to do them in more compelling or more thoughtful ways. Absolutely. I think that's human, right? And so Yeah. When we think Yeah, so when we how can we foster that in workplaces? Is it Space. Space. Yeah, I'm incredibly optimistic about our willingness and our ability to learn. You know, I think all this rhetoric like, oh, people are very conservative. They don't want to learn. I don't really believe it. Like our brain is a learning machine. We survive as a species because we're con we are wired to constantly answer these questions like, how do I make things better? And how do I make things? How do I make things matter? How do I make my life better? How do I make my life matter? Now, if you think we have a lot more spaces which are designed to help us make things better than we have space which are designed to make our lives matter. When we find those spaces, we find them extremely precious. It could be an organization which really kind of gets you time to think and try something differently. It could be one of the space that most of us you know, cherish is a mentoring relationship. What I mean by space I mean any kind of physical or social environment in which you are not constrained by having to constantly perform, where you can actually, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes take a step back and ask questions or critique or, you know, just imagine. And most of us are so used to managers that just help us get a little bit better than when we meet that one manager that actually ask us more fundamental questions. We remember them all our lives. We call them mentor. And, and usually what did these people do? They imagined us in a way we couldn't imagine ourselves. They actually helped us not improve at, at being the person we already were. They helped us question, who do we want to become? Right. See, a lot of our learning is really geared at being better. Not because that's what we naturally inclined to do. That's because it's what we focus. That's what we can measure. That's what we are used to do. And also, frankly, that's because that's what most organizations profit from. Right. You know, remember what you were saying earlier. You care about your learning. Right? Your organization cares about your performance. 
they tell you, you know, it's important that you learn, but that's only because you're going to perform tomorrow. But at the end of the day, very few people care about others learning in a more holistic way. And in fact, I think one of the biggest success factors you could possibly have is to have friends of learning. If you have two or three people in your life that really care about your learning rather than about your performance, you have one of the biggest competitive advantages that frankly anyone could possibly have. It's so rare. And if you're a leader, to be able to be a friend of learning for other people rather than just a friend of performance makes you memorable. And how do we t- transform businesses, right? Because you write about this this idea, which is that you know our work now has become for many of us our community and a huge part of our identity, right? And mm-hmm. and then the way that we consume products expresses our values to the world, et cetera. Like in a, in a completely different way, there's no separation, at least yeah. in the United States right now, between politics and and sort of moral the moral compass of a business. And you can't really sit back and not engage. And this seems like it's driven not only because it feels inherently like the right thing to do as businesses. And, you know, there are companies, particularly here, tech companies that have more power than countries, you know, when you think about what Facebook has done to democracy. And then you you think about the employees and you think about employee activists who want to see their values reflected in the place where they spend a majority of their time. And if, if you're working in an industry that where there's no real parallel track, how do you create that sort of value and that, that resonance, that meaning for employees? So it's not just sort of like a marketing move that you slap on about some end use of the product that maybe does something for some community somewhere. Like, how do you make it endemic and how do you make it something that employees feel like is real and lived? I think it requires a very fundamental change from a leadership perspective. Because I think, you know, I think systems are real and systems are powerful. But at the end of the day, systems change when people start to change. Mm. And especially when powerful people realize that they can't ask other people in the system to change if they don't change first and if they don't change more than the others do. And I think the fundamental change that's needed is really putting care at the center of leadership rather than performance. And I'll tell you, you know, and this is, for example, something that I think, you know, this is a moment. I First of all, you know, the premise of your question, I don't think business has become political. I think now we're becoming a lot more aware and conscious of the power business has. But mm. if you went to some of the large organizations in the last, you know, even the idea that, you know, you live your personal life out the door, that's a political statement. That's a political statement. So business has always been political. Now we are a lot more mindful that business is really the place where all our politics and all our personal lives get take place. And so, totally. you know, suddenly, you know, we don't just kind of, the, the old fiction, well, business was just business. And then there were these other place, you know, our our public life and our religious life and, you know, our private life. Now it's all into business. And I think once as an institution, you become so powerful, then you host people's lives. Then what happens, people's expectations change. So what's happening to business right now where people are putting all this attention and pressure is really nothing new. What's happening is the institution has become central to the social fabric. Mm-hmm. And when as an institution you become central to the social fabric, it's always happened, people switch their expectation of its leaders. If you're not central, all you need to do as a leader is to make the organization work. But if you are central, then people expect that you make society function. It's a very different ball game. If you have great power, then people expect that you discharge that power with a commensurate amount of responsibility, which is you take, you know, you take into account the effect your work, not just your product, but just really the culture you create has on people's lives, that it has on people's relationships, that it has on people's communities, and that it has potentially on bigger things like the future and the planet. And so this is just a consequence of business being so central. And more transparent, right? I feel like we have all this access to information and a much deeper understanding of uh, yeah of what you mentioned like some of those policies at play 
lobbying the yeah. way that business has has shifted policy without it's been a running the show for a very long time it's been yeah. running the show for a very long time the question now the reach is so extraordinary you know the business and large organizations in the national states have been wrestling with each other for like half a century now but now really that wrestling is so imbalanced that people are starting to get rightly uncomfortable and you know when you hear all these things like oh there's not going to be any globalization anymore and you know deglobalization i mean that's that's a decoy that you know the question is what do we do with the 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 biggest cultural divide in our day and age is between people who have access to this sort of global business environment and people who don't and still you know live confined in a certain space and therefore and and what is the relationship between those two groups of people? But I want to really go back. I don't want to evade the question: what change is needed? And the way maybe we can tackle that question is by looking at you know what's happens right now in many businesses as the COVID crisis, you know, and the racial process have happened. That a lot of managers have realized: wow, productivity. You know, people have been at home; they haven't been so controlled, and the productivity hasn't suffered. Surprise! And they've actually then switched into, okay, what do I need to do to make sure they're okay, that they're safe, that they're looked after? And as long as I did that stuff, the productivity was fine. And that's really been a moment of awakening for many. Now, what we need, hopefully, again, you know, allow me to be optimistic because I'm an educator and to be in education without being an optimist is really a a disgrace. Hopefully what happens is this. We take this intuition and we expand it to the level of institution. What is the intuition? That actually the core of leadership is care. And the performance is a result of a system in which there is enough care. Your job as a leader is not to drive the performance, it's to actually care enough about the institution and the system so that the performance comes at not too high a cost. So you know what, you love efficiency? Hold on to your concern for efficiency, but think about it in a slightly different way. How do you provide enough care so that people can perform, which is what they want to do all along because no one wants to be at work and not perform, so that people can perform with the maximum amount of, you know, of, to, their, to the maximum capacity they have and with the minimum amount of struggle and of pain. And I think, you know, that, what we are seeing, at least the seed of a potential real revolution, is this idea that we might put care at the center of leadership as opposed to the kind of all trio of vision, strategy, and, and persistence. And I'm actually right now developing you know, a new offering like this course, which is kind of based on this very simple idea. It's called the leadership core. You know, and one of the things we're discovering, at least that's this thing with crisis, they kind of bring you back to the basic. What is the core of leadership? The core is care. The core is care. If you go back to the core is how do you care? Now, what does it mean to care? Again, you know, not to be vague, to be more practical. One is the change that's needed. One is you have to put consciousness at the center of your leadership. What's consciousness? Are you aware of your con- of the consequences of your work in the future and, you know, beyond your immediate domain? Are you mindful of what happens, how your work translates in space and time? Can you put it in context? You need capacity. You know, you need the ability to sort of handle more than your usual, you know, relatively small range of concerns. And then you need, you need community. You need to be able to hold people together. And I think what a lot of managers have been surprised is a very simple truth. The crisis has pushed them to, for once, putting their concern for, you know, holding their teams together, making sure everyone was all right and oriented to the work ahead of what are the numbers. And the numbers have gone up. And I hope that people don't lose that insight. That wasn't a product of the crisis. That was a product of every team where the managers actually showed a little care and people felt seen as understood as human being. And then the performance took care of itself. Mm-hmm. That's the change. Yeah. You liken it to parenting, you know, this idea of like you can sort of try to control your child's interests or their output. It's not very effective, right? It's much more productive to foster curiosity 
and safety and love, really, and have yeah. sort of this foundational faith in, and trust in the people that you hire that you hired them for a reason and you have faith in them and you will let them sort of get to the get get across the finish line in whichever way feels best but that also requires a lot of faith that's a very good point any kind of business requires a lot of faith trust is easy trust is like when you have data to you know give your commitment but very often business is about the future and the great businesses don't just use data to predict the future they use imagination to invent it and every time you're trying to invent the future, it requires faith. I mean, at the end of the day, all leaders through history, what they've asked people is faith, is follow me and we will go to a place where we will be better. A place that doesn't exist right now. Yeah. Think a place where there was more equality, a place where there will be less risk, a place where, you know, our culture will be understood and respected. That's what all leaders ask. It's faith. I mean, I know we shy away from words like this, and I absolutely use the four-letter word, love. Yeah. I, I think it's uh, central. You see, I think at the end of the day, we talk a lot about humanizing. What you're talking about is really culture where people can discover their love. And if you think of a human being, what is a human being really? It's kind of a, it's an organism held together by love. And by love, I mean the the search for something that makes it personally fulfilling to forget ourselves. Mm-hmm. If you think like the experience of love is that experience of feeling completely fulfilled and enjoying yourself, but not thinking about yourself, thinking about another person. You know, if you think of romantic love or a friend or, or a child, it's the same for work. Most of us these days look try to look for work we love, which means work that makes us enjoy doing something that is actually not about us. And I think that's all great leadership is like that. It's very personal, but it's never just about you. And when you have a leader like that, then it becomes possible for people to love. To love what? To love their work, to love each other. I'm not really sure I will stretch to love your organization or you love your job. You know, I, I don't think you should ever love your job. It's going to never love you back. But there are jobs that make it possible. No, seriously. Never. That's true. And I, I don't think I even said it. I think someone else said it. But anyway. Business never, is a cold lover. Yeah. Business is a cold. It's, it's funny, right? Business is a cold lover, but asks you for a lot of passion. Like you're yeah. supposed to be passionate, but, but you know, remember you're very expendable. But it's, it's not kind of a, a big recipe. I mean, it's a recipe for excitement. Hey, we can be passionate, but we are not committed. But it's not really a recipe for love. However, however, you should respect your company and you should respect your job if they allow you to find work and people. Work and people are worth loving because it's through your work that you do well, you serve others, you fulfill yourself, and it's you know through the people around you that, of course, you stay safe and you stay sane and you also do something of value. And so that's, that's worth loving. And so I think that leaders can build systems. The leaders should never ask to be loved. And I think the leaders are just trying to be loved, disaster. But they should think about love in the sense, how do I build a system where it's easy for people to love? Or where they love and it's likely that they don't get hurt. The problem in a lot of organizations these days is no one in their right mind would do any loving because they know they're going to be betrayed. Right. And there's been so much betrayal, so much betrayal that it's hard. And I I love what you say. I think it's hard to find faith. And at the end of the day, if we can't restore faith, then it's going to be hard to restore any sense of pride, any sense of meaning, any sense of community, and all the sort of stuff that, you know, we seek at work and organizations say they want to provide. And again, I want to be optimistic. I want to believe that they... I want to, what I want to believe is this, that organize, you know, senior executives really mean it. And I know many of them mean it. And it's just a matter of figuring out that in order for that not to be just words, then we can't just change the rhetoric. We need to change the practice and the way we embody it in everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. 
And that requires, again, going back to faith, which I think, regardless of whether you're a religious person or spiritual person, is such a fundamental word for this precarious and and uncertain point in time, although all points in time are, you know, to some degree, there's sort of, I think, an illusion of certainty, right? But it does require relinquishing control or being fixated on an idea of the output or where exactly, you know, it's great to have vision and it's great to have an idea of what you want to build and then share that widely and make it collaborative. But you also have to relinquish control and how you might get there. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't actually think a vision mattered that much. I think people often think of a vision, you know, in hindsight. If you look at most of the leaders people admire, what they actually really did is they cared about deeply, deeply about a group of people or a place. And they committed to those people in that place, sometimes, you know, even to irrational and stupid extents. And then what happened is the vision emerged from that commitment. The the vision was a byproduct because I care so much about, you know, this group or this country, about this company, then I think we should be this. The vision is a product. Every time a leader puts the vision ahead, and this is honestly people like me, we've sold this idea, oh, you have a vision and then people buy it in, you know, but that's, that that's that's a salesperson. It's not really a leader. A leader doesn't have to sell anything. Uh, a leader is inviting. The vision then becomes a place where we are going. And I think to the point of control, I think we have to we have to make a big distinction between the way you know leaders or groups generate hope, because very often I think we put faith in some dangerous ideas. I mean, you can just you know, look at the news. And and I think there are different kinds of faith. There's faith that we put in people or organization that tell us everything will be all right. And that really exploit our desire for control. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that very rarely ends well. And charismatic leaders, I mean, that's really the arc of charismatic leaders, like, you know, making you a promise of ir- irrational hope making you feel in control, then controlling you through that, and then it all falls apart, and then the leader gets, you know, the people suffer and the leader gets kicked out. But there's another kind of, you know, I found that on occasion there's another kind of faith that is possible, you know, and it's a more resilient faith or a more resilient kind of hope. And this is where I use often the metaphor of the artist. If you look at a lot of artists, right, I wrote this piece a while ago on Bruce Springsteen, you know, all the way... What's interesting is someone who inspires people kind of singing about all, you know, sing 30 years of success singing about the death of the American dream and then makes you feel the American dream is alive. Like he never, never, ever says it's going to be all right. But the kind of all rhetoric is we're going to work through it. You know, if you think, for example, if you go to American politics, but if you look at the difference, for example, between the first Obama campaign and the second Obama campaign, the first Obama campaign was all this kind of unbridled hope. And the second one was a lot more realistic, like, okay, you know, yes, there are, you know, it's an unfinished business, but we can work through it. And I think in general, unfortunately, in leadership, we still too often, we too often fall for the kind of surrogate faith, for that, for that sort of unbridled hope that makes us feel in control. It's harder to, to listen to and respect leaders that say, you know, we can't control the future, but we're still here and we can still do our best to get there. Yeah. And this is where I kind of really, I'm a little suspicious about all this obsession with vision because vision is really this, you know, often vision is always a fantasy. You know, I come from, from a background as a you know, mental health and I trained in psychiatry and I was fascinated when I moved to a business school because, you know, I had spent years in a place where having an idea that of something that didn't exist and feeling passionate about it to the point of, you know, one obsession was actually something that got you in trouble. You had to be medicated. And then I moved to business and I was looking at the definition of vision, (laughs) an idea that a person feels passionate about and sometimes makes great sacrifices to pursue. And this is a good thing. You know, the same thing that we used to call an hallucination. Now here we call it a vision. And of course, a vision is more dangerous because it's a shared hallucination. And so, I think part of the change we were talking about earlier is really 
putting a little less emphasis on some kind of vague idea of the future and a little bit more emphasis. You know, care is also about starting from the present. We are here. We are struggling. But there's still things we can do. We can get through this. You know, when I was saying earlier, you'll see two kinds of reaction to this moment. People who really regress and become even more fanatical and distressed than before. And people who really come out the other side a little bit more expansive, a little bit wiser. And I'll tell you how you're going to see it. The former are out there asking, how can we get back to normal? I promise if you follow me, we'll quickly, quickly get back to normal and it'll be greater than ever. And the latter say, how can we get through it? And, you know, we don't know exactly where what's going to happen, but we're still here. We have a fighting chance. Let's, you know, let's stick together and we'll be better for it. And I think that's a very different rhetoric, unfortunately, than what we have called traditionally leadership. And unless we are able to recognize that as leadership, to treat it as such, to put our faith into that kind of leadership, then we will collude into sustaining the system, which we then complain about. Mm. Because it's not just about what leaders can do. It's about each and every one of us. Every time we make a choice about who we follow, we are reinforcing a system or we are helping it change. That happens in business. That happens in your family. That happens in your community. Every time you put your faith in a leader that offers you the empty calorie of a vision of grandiosity without, you know, we'll have all the benefit and no pain. You are helping sustain the kind of system that then we critique. Every time you say, yes, look, you might be imperfect and maybe your vision is not so grand and you're asking me to do a lot of work, but you see me, then you're choosing a much more humane system. Well, thank you so much for your time. That was beautiful. I really appreciate your thoughts and your work as we reimagine work tomorrow. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jean Piero Petrieri. For more from Jean Piero, head to his site at gpetrieri.com. That's G P E T R I G L I E R I. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.